The text for this morning's sermon is John 5, 31 through 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did, do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you, when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Our Father, in some ways this is a challenging word before us today, but it is a good word. In some ways this word before us is like a scalpel that will cut and sting in some ways, and yet it is a word that will heal and give us life if we will listen to it. And so I pray that you would come now, Father, by your Holy Spirit and teach your people. I pray that you would use me as I speak, but mainly I pray that you would stir among your people, and I pray that you would work among us even after the service as we talk about this text and apply it to our lives and our homes and our community groups at work and in the world, Father. We thank you, Father, for your heart to speak to us, for your heart to guide us, for your heart to mold us into your image, for your heart to lead us in the way that we should go, and we thank you for what you will do with this word now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Simply because he had healed a man on the Sabbath who had been crippled for 38 years, the Jewish leaders sought out Jesus and they interrogated him. We looked at that last week. In response to their questions, Jesus made several startling claims. Specifically, he said the following. He said that he only does what he sees his father doing. And if you really think about that claim, it's pretty extreme. He said that God was his father, which to the Jews implied that he was making himself equal with God. To us, this just sounds like he's saying he has intimacy with God. 
To them he was saying that he was on par with God, and indeed, that is what he was saying. He said that the Father loves him and has given him power to give life to whomever he will, because just as life is in the Father, so life is in Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, just imagine some teacher coming into this church or putting out some podcast or something and saying, in the way that God has power to give life, I too have the power to give life. Imagine that claim and understand the extent of it, the the severity of it. Jesus said that the Father loves him and has given him power to raise all the dead with nothing more than the words of his mouth. And once they are raised, he said, that the Father has entrusted to him all the judgment of the dead. He said the Father himself will judge no one, but that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That is a massive claim. It's one that we reject from another false teacher, Joseph Smith. Do you know that Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, says that when you die, you will answer to Elohim, Jesus, and Joseph Smith? It's a crazy claim. And even in Jesus' day, it was a very extreme claim, and I think the Lord knew that it was extreme. Jesus said about his judgment that he only seeks his Father's will, that he does not seek his own will. And therefore, he was bold to say that his judgment is perfectly just, which certainly means that it's without error. And Jesus said that the Father was pleased for Jesus to be honored along with him at the same level as the Father. Again, beloved, there are people who will say Jesus never claimed to be God, but to the Jewish mind, that is as clear as clear can be. If you're saying The Son will be honored along with the Father. You are saying that the Son is God. These are extraordinary claims. And surely the Jewish leaders who heard them found them difficult to understand at first and certainly even more difficult to accept. As those who were charged with shepherding the people of Israel for the glory of God, as those who were charged with protecting the flock of God from false teachers, They really had an obligation to question him. They had an obligation to test them, and I don't think we should blame them for that. Evidently, Jesus himself did not blame them because he went on in the rest of chapter five to justify his claims. He went on in the rest of chapter five to show the foundation of what he was saying so that they would believe that it was true. He himself was not expecting these people just to hear his words and accept them as though they were nothing. He himself had the humility, I would even say, to offer them evidence to why they should believe. And so let's begin pondering what he had to say by looking at verse 31. Jesus said, to begin with, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, that bears some resemblance to the commands in the Old Testament that everything should be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But when you go look at the two places where that is said in the Old Testament, that's actually talking about the establishing of criminal offenses, everything from garden variety offenses up to capital um, punishment. Whenever somebody was going to be convicted of a crime, there had to be at least two, hopefully three witnesses. But there's nothing really said about a prophet. There's nothing said about how many witnesses have to come along and establish a prophet. And so I don't think Jesus is so much conforming here to legal requirements of the law of God. I think he's just making a very general statement that if you stop to think about it, it's common sense. If he himself is the sole foundation and the sole confirmation of all his words and works, how can he be a true prophet? 
If he is the only evidence that what he's saying is true, then he is in fact a false prophet and the things that he was saying saying, were untrue. Accordingly, Jesus continued in verse 32. He said, there is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now surely there's more than one other that bears witness to Jesus, but please notice that he makes his point in the singular. There is another one who bears witness about me. And the way that this is written in Greek implies that it's not as though the person just bore witness and then the time of witness was over. It's written in such a way to say that this one is witnessing and witnessing and witnessing and witnessing about Jesus. This person is perpetually pointing to Jesus and saying he is the one. If Jesus was the sole foundation of his claims, his claims were untrue, but there was another who was consistently and persistently testifying about him. Now it's curious to me that Jesus says that I know that the testimony of this one is true. Rather than saying you all should know that this testimony is true or I will show you how this testimony is true. As I mentioned, the Jewish leaders had the right and I think they had the obligation to test someone who made such extraordinary claims in the name of God. And from what I can see, Jesus was glad to answer their questions. True prophets are not afraid to be tested. Rather, they rejoice in testing. Just like the Apostle Paul, when the Bereans tested his teaching, he rejoiced. He did not complain. The testing in itself was not the issue. However, as Jesus said in John 2, 24 through 25, He did not entrust himself to people and he still does not entrust himself to people because his confidence is in another one. The response of those who heard Jesus teach was not completely irrelevant, that's for sure, but it was also not of utmost importance. The response of people who heard the teaching of Jesus and who this day hear the teaching of Jesus is not central to what the life of Jesus is all about. And it is nothing compared to the testimony of this one who is testifying and testifying and testifying about Jesus. And because Jesus had such an intimate relationship with this one, because he was so perfectly submitted to this one, he had all confidence to say, I know that this one's testimony is true. He talks about me and I know that what he's saying is true. Beloved, that is not egotistical arrogance. That is relational confidence. That is a person who is close to the one testifying about him, close enough to know that everything that's being said is true. And that witness was all that Jesus needed, period and end of story. So then, who is this one? Who is Jesus talking about? Well, John the Baptist naturally comes to mind, and thus it's really no surprise that Jesus brings him up in verses 33 through 36. Previously, you probably remember that the Jewish leaders had sent a delegation to John to test him. And well, they should have. As I said, they had an obligation to test people who were claiming to have authority in the name of God. When the delegation arrived there, you probably remember that John bore witness to the truth, first about himself. He said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the prophet, I'm not, a, a, I'm not Elijah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He knew his job. He knew that as great as he was, his life was actually about somebody else. And so he also bore witness to the truth about Jesus. Namely, he said multiple times, behold, there he is, that one right there. 
That is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. I saw the dove from heaven, the Holy Spirit, descend upon him and remain upon him. And that is the sign that God the Father gave me, that he was the one. He is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Beloved, the whole ministry of John the Baptist was to point to Jesus and say, follow him. And so, while it seems that Jesus was drawing on John's testimony to establish the truthfulness of his own ministry, notice what he declared in verse 34. He's very clear. He said, it's not though that I receive the testimony of men. Even a great man like, the, like John the Baptist, the great prophet, so the reason that Jesus brought the John into the discussion was not so much to enlist him as a witness, but so as to persuade his hearers to be saved. And what I mean is that he's trying to speak to his hearers in a way that they can understand. He's trying to offer them witness that they can grasp onto. John was somebody that they could see. John was somebody that they could hear. John was someone whom they could test. John was someone with whom they could converse. John was someone with whom they could argue and, and all the rest. John was a physical, visible witness to the glory of Jesus. And here specifically are a few things that he said. Chapter one, verse 15. This Jesus was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. He is above me because he was before me. And Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said some 800 years before. And finally, verses 26 and 27, John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Are you hearing that? Have you ever said about anybody in your life that you are so less than them that you wouldn't even untie their shoes? That's how John felt about Jesus Christ. His whole life was designed to point away from himself and toward Jesus. Long before John the Baptist was born, God the Father prepared a testimony for him to bear, and that testimony was about Jesus. The testimony of John was actually the Father's witness pouring through John so that those who heard him might believe. And in his grace, Jesus offered up John as a living witness to his works and to his words, even though he did not need the testimony of men or receive the testimony of men. He gave them a physical, visible witness so that they could grasp onto it. But in the end, beloved, the Father is the one that Jesus is talking about. John may have borne witness, but it was the Father through John that was bearing witness. For a time, Jesus said, John burned and he shone like a bright lamp in a dark place and for a little while, the Jewish leaders were willing to rejoice in his light. They were willing to listen to him. They were willing to receive him. They were willing to partner with him. They were willing to pray with him. They were willing to celebrate the fact that he had been sent after so many years of silence into such a dark and needy time. And now, what they needed to do was to listen to John, to listen to what he had to say, and to believe in Jesus Christ. For the Father sent John to testify about Jesus that those people might be saved. But again, the emphasis here is on the fact that it is the Father that is testifying to Jesus Christ 
through, the, through John the Baptist. The Father is the one who is testifying and testifying and testifying, this is my beloved Son, and though he may use various persons and things, he is the ultimate testifier to Christ. Since Jesus, then, is superior to John, it only makes sense of what Jesus said in verse 36. He said, the testimony that I have been given is greater than that of John. Now, some of the things Jesus claimed were very, very hard to accept. But I want us to understand that it's not as though Jesus just burst on the scene out of nowhere. The people should not have been shocked. In fact, they should have been ready for his coming. In glad submission to God, John the Baptist did burst onto the scene, and he prepared the way for the Lord by bearing witness to him and saying that he was the Lamb of God who was soon to come and take away the sins of the world. This also was an extraordinary claim, and if that claim is true, you'd think that the one coming after John would do extraordinary works. You'd think that you wouldn't be so surprised when the one that comes after John does great and unusual things that cause us to wonder in God. This is why the latter half of verse 36 says, Jesus says, that his works were actually the works of the Father. In other words, his works were also the testimony of the Father given to establish his ministry so that people would believe. As we learned two weeks ago, beloved, Signs are not a thing in themselves, not at least in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, signs are given to cause wonder so that we will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pulsing and prophesying through every single sign that God has ever given or will ever give is this claim that the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of all who would put their faith in him. At the heart of every sign is the testimony of God the Father about Jesus Christ. The Father had given Jesus things to do and words to speak and a mission to accomplish. And in this way, the Father was constantly bearing witness to Jesus, saying, he is the one, you can see it with your own eyes. So when we contemplate the things that Jesus has done, the things Jesus continues to do, the things Jesus will do, what we really ought to do then is pause and listen to his words because the works are trying to draw attention to the authority of his words. The words of Jesus are greater than the works of Jesus. The works of Jesus are given to establish the words of Jesus, you see? It's just like with John the Baptist. They knew he was a great man, so you know what they should have done? They should have listened to what he said. If they would have listened to what he said, they would have not been shocked by Jesus. And now the same is true of Jesus, but all the more, all the more. If we're impressed by what he's done, then what we really, really, really ought to do is listen closely, carefully, daily, for a lifetime to the things that he has to say. In addition to the testimony of John and to the testimony of Jesus' works, the Lord now goes on in verse 37 to say that the Father has also directly testified about Jesus. Although the Father has been and always will be the one who is speaking through other persons and other things, pointing our attention to Jesus Christ, he has also endeavored to issue direct speech about Jesus that will endure forever. 
As for Jesus' hearers, you will see there, he said to them pretty boldly, he said that they had never heard the Father's voice, they had never seen the Father's form, and what is more, they did not have the Father's word abiding in them. That's a strong claim to religious people, isn't it? The proof of what he was saying, though, was this. They did not believe in the one whom the Father was sent. And what I want us to understand this morning is that given what was available to them, they should have believed in the one whom whom the Father sent. They should have seen. They should have been able to discern. They should have been able at least to come to know through a process that he was the one. They should have bowed down. They should have believed. But the word of God, in fact, no matter how familiar they were with it, was not abiding in them. In some ways, these people knew the word of God very well. But as this incident with the crippled man has shown, they were more committed to their books of rules than they were to the law of God. They did not know the heart of God. And therefore, even though the word was familiar to their minds, it was about a million miles away from their hearts. It was not real to them. It was not relational to them. It was not the spiritual, physical, practical guiding force in their lives that it should have been. It was not the love of a father guiding his children or the love of a shepherd guiding his sheep. It was not living inside of them and teaching them how to love God and be humble before God, how to love other people and be humble before other people. If the word was like this in their lives, they would have, at least through a process, They would have seen Jesus and they would have rejoiced in this healing and they would have believed. The leaders of Israel, beloved, diligently searched the scriptures. And that word diligently really means diligently. It means they dug, they dug, they dug. In fact, in the ancient world even, the Jews were famous for their zeal for the scripture. They searched the scriptures because they thought that by the scriptures, by knowing and studying and applying the scriptures, they would have eternal life. I could quote from you, for you from the rabbis, where the rabbis said exactly that. In the study of the word of God is the path to eternal life. But in searching the scriptures, please hear this, we're in the same danger. In searching the scriptures, they missed the whole point. The scriptures persistently and consistently bear witness to Jesus Christ from Genesis to Malachi. But instead of hearing this witness, these leaders created a massive Bible-based rule book called the Mishnah and the Talmud that frankly became more important than the Bible, and in this way, they missed the heart of God. I'm not saying there were no believers among them. That would be a ridiculous statement to make. God himself said there has always been a remnant among his people. But I am saying that by and large, the people had a kind of zeal for the Bible, but they completely missed the, word, the heart of God. And this is why, Jesus says this in verses 39 and 40, this is the reason why they failed to recognize him and to believe in him. This is why they failed to have eternal life, you see? Some of us talked after the service last week that it would be hard for us to accept some of the things that Jesus said, and to that I say amen. But there can be a process of conversation too. Somehow throughout the process, if your heart is truly after God, if you are seeking God, when God appears to you in the form of Jesus, when he manifests his glory before you, you're gonna see it, and if you don't see it, the problem is with you, it's not with him. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people here. The reason you can't believe 
is because you're playing games with God and you don't actually know him. You have the veneer of religiosity, but your heart is far, far, far from your maker. Again, beloved, it's not like Jesus just burst onto the scene. First of all, John passionately tried to awaken the people and boy was Israel awakened. Everybody knew about John the Baptist. If only they would have listened to what he said. Another one's coming, he's about to come. It isn't about me, it's about him. Look to him. And besides John, what Jesus is saying here is that the scripture had been testifying, I would add, shouting to the people of Israel for 1,400 years that Jesus Christ was coming. They should have known, beloved. Before the days of Moses, the Father testified about Jesus through his work in Adam, in Noah, in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in Joseph, in many other people. And from the days of Moses forward, the Father began to verbally testify and to codify these things in written books, things that he had to say about the Son. He was preparing his people for his Son to come 1,400 years before it actually happened. There are so many passages we could turn to so that I could show you what I mean. We could literally be here all day long as Jesus was on the road to Emmaus looking from Genesis to Malachi at all the texts. But just turn with me to one place since the subject here is really Moses. Please keep your finger in John and turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. If you don't know your Bible, go to the beginning of the Bible and make a right turn. It's the fifth book in, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. This should be a familiar text to you, but I really think that this kind of thing is what Jesus has in mind when he says that the Father has been testifying about him for a very, very long time. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your brothers. In other words, he's gonna be a Jew. It is to him you shall listen. You shall listen to him. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his, this great fire anymore lest I die. They're talking about Mount Sinai and what happened there. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is constantly saying, I only say what the Father tells me to say. But the prophet who will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself, I'm sorry, it just should say, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Beloved, ultimately, these words are the words of the Father pouring through Moses, and they are about Jesus Christ. Though these words, through these words and many other words, 
The father testified about Jesus for 1,400 years. And then when the time was full, he sent John the Baptist to shine and burn like a lamp and the people did in fact pay attention. The Lord was about to manifest himself on the earth and accordingly Jesus came and began to say the things that he said and began to do the things that he did. The shepherds of Israel who had authority over the temple who had authority over the synagogues, who had authority over the people of God, they should have known who Jesus was, beloved. And as I said, it may have taken a process. I'm not saying that there was no need of a process, but they had been given everything they needed to recognize the one whom the Father had sent. And it was indeed a sign of unbelief that they could not see and that they would not believe. This was Jesus' rebuke, it was stinging, and it was true. Having thus rebuked his hearers, Jesus makes clear in verse 41, please notice there, that he was not seeking their glory or their affirmation. He does not receive glory from people. What I hear him saying is, you really should have believed in me, it would be good if you believe in me now, but I want you to understand something, I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your glory. I am actually not seeking what you have to give to me. When we talk about giving glory to Jesus, what we're really talking about is agreeing with the Father about what he has said about Jesus. When we glorify Jesus, we add nothing to Jesus. There is a very real sense in which Jesus needs nothing from us. He does not need our glory. He does not need our praise. He needs nothing from us. He is God and we are not God. Of course, our praise rejoices his heart because of all that it implies, but we have to get straight about something. He does not need our praise, he does not receive our glory. It was true then and and it is true now. As for Jesus' hearers on that particular day, he was persuaded and he said to them another very difficult and harsh thing. He was persuaded that the love of God was not in them. I think this means on the one hand, that the love that comes from God was not dwelling inside of them. They knew things about God's word, but they did not know God. And I think it also means that the love for God from their hearts to God was not in them. They were not walking in love with God. And why was he persuaded that this was so? Again, beloved, he came with overwhelming witness in his Father's name, and they did not receive him. They refused to believe. Tell me, Who of anybody on the earth at that time should have been able to recognize Jesus but the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders? As it was, as it is still today, sadly, it's still this way today, Jesus continued. On the other hand, if the latest hotshot came down the road with some powerful ministry in his own name, they would believe him. If someone came proclaiming certain things in his name and trying to build a ministry, so to speak, they would follow right along. You know why? Because they were part and parcel of the same pursuit of the glory of men. And because they wanted glory from the earth, they were glad to participate in the glorification of other people. If someone came in his own name, they're going to go right along with him. Here's the next hot ministry. Let's go for it. Let's follow after him. Let's put them up on a pedestal. But if someone comes in the name of the Father, namely Jesus Christ, they would not receive him. Something was really, really, really wrong with that, beloved. When you seek for the glory of men, you know what you do? You kill your ability to have faith. 
Because when you seek glory from men, you exalt men as God and you demote God as if he was nothing more than a man. So then look what Jesus said in verse 44. It's no surprise. It's a powerful statement, but it's, I think, self-evident in many ways. How can you believe? How can you put your faith in me? How is it even possible when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, when you do not seek to know and walk with your Father, the far better path of life is to die to the need of praise from men and from women and to passionately seek the glory that comes from knowing God, from walking with God, from walking in the will of God, from doing the things that our Father says, from rejoicing in his presence. That kind of glory puts God at the center. That kind of glory exalts God to the highest place. That kind of glory puts men and women in the proper realm where they belong. And it escorts the people who seek the glory of God into a joy that is as indescribable as it is undeniable. And I'm saying that not just from a theological point of view, but from an experiential point of view. Yesterday morning, I spent two or three hours down by the Mississippi River praying over this text, brooding over this text, praying that God would display his power here this morning. And oh, oh, the joy that I had as I just sat there on a bench looking at the Mississippi River, enjoying our Father, knowing our Father, I couldn't put words to it. Indescribable, undeniable, a much, much better glory than the glory of men and of women. Even so, Jesus said in verse 45, if you look there, that he would not be the one to accuse them to the Father for all these things. He would not do it. Who was going to accuse them? Moses himself was going to accuse them, the one on whom they had put their hope, the one through whom they thought that they could seek and find eternal life. The very words that they claimed to know, please hear this, the very words they claimed to know would be the words that would condemn them at the day of judgment. Please ponder that. These people knew the Bible. The words they claimed to know would be the very words that would condemn them on the day of judgment. They saw themselves as masters of the word of God when in fact they needed still to be mastered by the God of the word. If they had only sought from the heart to know the Lord through the words of Moses, then they would have seen Jesus and believed because Moses wrote about Jesus and not just in Deuteronomy 18, but all over the place. The Father himself had been testifying about Jesus for a very long time but it was them that didn't have ears to hear, that did not have hearts to believe. And so what Jesus says in verse 47 is just common sense. It's powerful, it's sad, but it's common sense. If they did not believe Moses' writings, how in the world would they ever believe Jesus' words? How is faith gonna come out of unbelief, right? How is a persistent pattern of rejecting God gonna all of a sudden lead a person to the place where they embrace the full manifestation of God. And yet, as harsh as a statement as that is, please look back at verse 34, because I want us to understand that in saying all these things to the Jewish leaders, that Jesus wanted their salvation. He said, first about John the Baptist, but I think it can be applied to everything that he was saying, that he said these things so that they might be saved. 
And when we look forward to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, please just hear, you don't have to turn, just listen to what it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, where? In Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Who were those priests? It may be that there were people who had direct duties inside the temple of God, but sometimes the word priest can just be applied to the greater group of leaders that was there, the Sanhedrin, people who were made up of priests, of Sadducees, and of Pharisees. This could be a number of people. But whatever the case, I want us to understand that what happened in Acts chapter six with a bunch of people, leaders of Jerusalem, coming to faith in Christ was only a couple years after what happened in John chapter five. It's very possible that some of the very people who heard this rebuke later came to faith in Jesus Christ. Understand, Jesus is a truth teller. He came to tell the truth. He came to expose things. He came to show us what really is because you can't deal with God if you're not really willing to see what really is, right? And Jesus came absolutely filled with grace, eager to lavish grace upon anybody who would hear humble themselves and believe. He came full of grace and truth, and for this we can praise his great name. This forthright confrontation with the Jewish leaders, beloved, was actually a demonstration of his saving love. He was for them and not against them. So in the last few minutes we have here, let me just ask the question, what has all of this to do with us seems to me that as modern evangelicals, we face much the same danger as did the ancient Jews. We need to take care lest we too end up giving lip service to the word of God and miss the God of the word. That is a danger that every one of us faces every single day of our lives. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we know one whom we actually don't know. We must take care lest we too end up searching the scriptures and missing the whole point of the scriptures. We must take care lest we too end up seeking the glory of other people in the religious realm or at work or in in the educational realm or in the home uh, making realm or whatever realm you live in. We have to be careful that we aren't living our lives to seek glory from other people and neglecting the one satisfying life-giving glory that comes from the only true God. We must take care lest we too become blind and deaf and unbelieving through our quest for earthly things. As I prayed about this uh, yesterday down by the river, there are so many things that came to mind, but I, and this might seem like a little bit of a left turn, but I don't really think it is. The thing that really gripped my heart is I, I, I think that technology and the way technology is functioning in our lives has become one of the greatest threats to the maturing of our faith that there is in our, in our world and in our daily lives. I'm not an anti-technology person. I said the other Wednesday night, my phone's sitting right over there. It's hardly ever without sight of my hand or reach. Even when I'm sleeping, it's charging right here. I could just reach out and touch it at any time. I'm not an anti-tech person, but I wanna say as, as clearly and as passionately as I can, technology in our day and in our time has the danger of distracting us away from God. We are getting addicted to distraction and we're getting bored with God. Am I right or am I wrong? I'm speaking about myself too. Even when we use our phones, our pads, our computers 
to study the Bible or to listen to podcasts and sermons. There's something about the devices themselves that is programming our brains. I just watched a video the other day about a guy at Google who quit Google because of what they're trying to do to get us all addicted to their devices. He lifted up his phone and said, you need to see this as a slot machine. And he said, what I mean is that it is being designed to stimulate your brain so that you wanna keep coming back for more and more stimulus. And the more these things stimulate our brains, tell me the truth, aren't you getting bored with God? Is it hard for you to sit and open your Bible and read for 30 minutes, to read for an hour? When's the last time you read a book all the way through? When's the last time you sought God without any technological device anywhere around you? I'm telling you, beloved, I'm not an anti-tech guy. It's a vital part of my life and I don't apologize for that. But I think that it's a great threat to us so that we could be surrounded with the things of God and our hearts be very, very distant from God. It's a thing that we need to take very seriously. Either we take dominion over these tools or they will take dominion over our relationship with God. Either we take control of them or they are gonna take control of us. And when they take control of us, our eyes become blind to seeing what Jesus is up to, our ears become deaf, our hearts become hard, and we're just frankly not that interested in doing the things that God is up to in the world. And if we follow in that way, if we allow technology to sort of overcome and rule our lives. On the day of judgment, Jesus will not have to accuse us because the words that he spoke themselves will accuse us. And it won't just be Moses. In our case, from Genesis to Revelation, will stand and witness against us. Every single day, they are pleading with us to come and know God, to know the happiness that comes from knowing God and walking with God and delighting in God. And if we persistently refuse the offer, then we have no excuse, beloved, and the word of God will accuse us. I'm not trying to be a negative, threatening kind of preacher here. I'm just trying to tell the truth. It is possible to surround ourselves with the veneer of God and not actually be connected with him. So we need to often disconnect from the internet and all that stuff and really, really connect with God. And so I wanna close today by offering you a challenge and by issuing an invitation. Here's the challenge. I wanna challenge you to read some portion of scripture every day for seven days, here's the key, from a print Bible. You heard about these things? And I'm being really serious. I wanna challenge you to take your phone, your pad, your computer, turn them off, stick them in another room, get yourself far away from them, just sit down with God without distraction for seven days in a row. Even if it's just 15 or 30 minutes. If while you're reading, you get curious about something or you get bored, resist the temptation to get up and grab one of your devices. Just don't do it. Push through. Trust the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Read a portion of scripture. Think about it until you understand it and then talk to God about what you've just read. Express to him any questions you have, any confusion you have, any conviction you have, any excitement you have, any dreams or visions that the Lord gave you out of the scripture. Just talk to your father about the things that emerge from the word. Learn to be with God, beloved, without distraction. Just learn. And when your time is done, I wanna encourage you then to talk to him about the place of technology in your life. For me, I, I don't have the desire and I don't see a way to completely unplug from tech. I'm just saying I want it to be where it belongs. That's what I want. 
And I wanna challenge you to do that too. Spend some time just looking your father in the face and then talk with him about the things that are keeping you from his heart. Now I will say, if you just think about it for a minute, you would see it for yourself, that it might take time for us to wean off of our devices, don't you think? We're so used to the stimulation that it's hard when we don't have that stimulation. And so if on day one or day two you're super bored, you find it super difficult, you read the same verse 20 times and you're not hearing a thing that it's saying, just keep pressing on. Just keep trusting. I promise you that if you do this seven days in a row, you'll start seeing a change in your mind. And if you see a change in your mind, perhaps, perhaps the Lord would lead you in a better way. If you distance yourself from your gadgets for a little bit every day, you won't die. Good news. In fact, you may come back to life. You may really come back to life. I have started now in my times of sermon preparation, I turn my phone off, I stick it somewhere where it's really hard for me to get to, and I get out of there, I go somewhere else. Just so God and I can have totally undistracted time. And when those little moments of lull come in where I don't really know what to think or do, instead of filling them with checking my messages, I fill them by waiting on God. And I think it's just so much more of a life-giving thing. So there it is, the seven-day no-tech printed Bible challenge. Go for it. And if God blesses you, please let me know how he blesses you. Second thing, I want to invite you to something. I just, God put this on my heart yesterday, and we'll see if he was really in it or not. I know for Kim and I, we'll certainly do this, but I would love it if some of you would join us. I want to invite you to join me for a guided half day of prayer. The idea is that some of us will come together, put our devices away for about four hours, and just seek the Lord together. The pattern that I'm seeing is that we'd meet about nine o'clock, probably in a park around here in Elk River somewhere. I'd give a short orientation, send you off with a guided meditation to read the scripture, meditate and pray for one hour. When that hour is over, we'll come back, debrief what happened, I'll give more instruction, then give you another guided meditation and send you off for another hour to just read the scripture, meditate and pray, come back, have lunch together, and debrief what happens. So at the end of the day, you get some instruction, you get two hours alone with God, you get time of fellowship with your brothers and sisters. If I can get just three people to say yes to that, then I will do it. The first day that I can really do it is Saturday, July 8th, so if that's something you're interested in, maybe note that date and let me know if you can come. I'll try to remember, speaking of technology, I'll try to remember to send an email out later to remind you of that, but I would really love for a handful of us at least to gather and just learn what it means to get away with God for half a day and really, really connect with him. Whether it's technology or other things, beloved, I wanna encourage you to take Jesus' words in John 31 to 47 and read them carefully, meditate on them carefully, and do what the Lord tells you to do. Whether it's this or other things that are keeping your heart far from God, I pray that the Lord would reveal that and I pray that the Lord would lead you in the way that you should go. Let's pray now that he'll help us. Our Father, I am grateful to you for being willing to speak hard words to us. I'm grateful to you that you're a God who will tell us the truth. I'm grateful to you that you're a God who is not afraid to get in our face when that's what we need. And I'm grateful to you that you are a God who is eager to lavish grace upon anybody who would draw near to you and listen and believe. And I pray, Father, that this very morning that you would help us believe. 
I pray that this very day we would be willing to distance ourselves from our gadgets and from whatever other things take us away from you so that we could just seek you for a time. And I pray that as we do that, that you would work powerfully in our lives. I pray that you would confirm not so much the things I have said today, but the things you are saying in your word. Father, we don't want to be people who name your name but don't know don't know you. So Father, I pray again that in your grace you would come and help us. And I thank you because I know that you're more eager to help us than we are to be helped. In Jesus' name we ask these things, amen.